Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 15, 42 through 16, 8. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, happy Easter, everybody. Oh, man. Okay, we'll try that again. Happy Easter, everybody. Thank you. That's much better. Uh, My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. If we've not had the chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, Here's the thing. I grew up in church. I was born and raised in the church. And some of the uh, most painful experiences that I've had personally have come at the hands of people who claim the name of Jesus And some of the most hurtful experiences have happened in a church context. And that's true. But another side of the truth is that some of the best experiences I've ever had in my life have come from the church. And some of the most amazing things that have happened to me have been in a church context. And so I'm saying that to say that I know on a day like this, some of you, this is like your first time in church in a while. And that's a really brave thing to do. And that's not lost on me. I want to say I I don't fully know your story, but I get it. And I'm glad that you're here. And we're all kind of on a spectrum of trying to figure out where we stand with Jesus and with Christianity. We do not claim to have all the answers. We do not claim to have it all figured out. But we really do believe that Jesus is alive. We really do believe what we're talking about today for good reason. And we want to help you process. We want to help you wrestle. So whether that's over the course of a few weeks or months or years, 
whether it's over coffee or over a drink somewhere, we would love to do that. We're really, really glad that you're here. And it's crazy. Today is, is a fun day. It's Easter. It's hard not to be excited about Easter, but it's also a little bit of a bittersweet day for me because today we end a series that we started 364 days ago. We started this Gospel of Mark series uh, literally on April 18th, 2021, almost a year to the day, and we're wrapping that story up with the resurrection account in John Mark's Gospel. So crazy that we're already at the end of this story and really excited to look at it with you. Uh, here's what I want to invite you to do. If you have a Bible, go to Mark 16. We're going to be in Mark 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's going to be some in the chairs underneath you. You can take those home if you don't own a Bible. We'll also have the words on the screen. So, Father, would you move today? Thank you that we're, uh, we're gathered to celebrate reality. We're celebrating that death has an expiration date. We're celebrating that you went into a tomb so that we could walk out of our tomb. We're celebrating that right now I'm praying to not the ceiling or to some bones in Palestine, but we're praying to the risen, living, blood pumping in your veins, Jesus. And I pray that you, Jesus, would show up and you would move and you would draw yourself and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's my assumption. My assumption is that you woke up this morning thinking about a lot of various things, maybe thinking about what you were going to wear today, uh, or maybe you're thinking about where you're headed after the service, or maybe you're kind of hoping secretly that your family gathering doesn't denigrate into like a Jerry Springer episode, and you're just, you have all these hopes, you have all these things and all these thoughts that are going through your head, but maybe the thing you were not thinking is that you were going to come to church today and wrestle with literally the most important questions you'll ever ask ever in your whole life. And and it's interesting because questions and being curious and asking even deep, important questions is central to humanity. It's something that we all do, whether you're seven years old or 77 years old, we're always asking important questions about our life, like what career path should I choose? Where should I go to school? Uh, Who are my friends? What are my passions? What, what, What should I do in this unique stage and season of my life? How do I respond to what's currently happening? I mean, there's all these important questions that we ask. And sometimes the questions that we ask are not important at all. Uh, I'm really grateful for Google because now we can know what most people ask most of the time. I I did some study this week on like what are the most uh, frequently asked questions on Google. And here's just a few. This is like the number one most asked question of 2021. What to watch which tells you a lot about our culture. It's like, because of the pandemic, I've seen every movie that's ever been made. And now, Google, can you help me out? There's gotta be something else out there. Or maybe we'll, we'll ask, this is, this is the second most asked question, where's my refund? Do you remember getting those? That was awesome. Like, run that back, please. Uh, here's one, you can hear the desperation in, in this question. How to lose weight fast. I love that it says fast. It's like, I don't want to do any of the work and I don't want to change my behavior, but I need the pounds to just shed off of me real quickly because I've been watching too much TV. Uh, Here's one that I don't understand. What time is it? Like thousands and thousands and thousands of people Googled what time is it. They pulled out their phone in which the time was right there. They unlocked their phone and they typed that into Google. And then here's one that's just deeply concerning to me. Why is my poop green? And I just want to say, if you're one of those people and your poop is green, please call your doctor. <laughs> or, or not, just Google it. It's up to you. It's however you want to play it. 
we all ask questions. And here's what's so crazy to think about. Millions of people all over the world, the most diverse religion in the history of the world, Christianity, they're gathering today and they're actually claiming something that's so subversive and so powerful and so, at the sound of it, crazy. It's that Jesus is alive. And millions and millions of people from all over the world are gathering to make that claim today, which we would say as Christians is core to the good news. Now, here's what we have to do today. We have to ask three really important questions. And these are questions that sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to, to wrestle with, but we need to. Here's the first one. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Like, did it really happen? Or do we just need to check our brains in at the door and go along with the fairy tale? The second question is, if it did happen, then what does it actually matter? Why does it matter? And in light of that, what does it mean for me? So that's where we're headed. And the reason why I think these questions are so deeply important is because as the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has said, he he said that everybody in our cultural moment is haunted. It doesn't matter if you're someone who's an atheist or you're someone who's been walking with Jesus for years and years and years, we're all haunted. And here's what he means. If you're an atheist in the room, you don't believe in God, you're actually haunted by the possibility that there really is a God. You're haunted by the fact that maybe Christianity has some truth to it. Maybe Jesus really did rise from the dead and that's a haunting thing to you. So you might be skeptical, but you're a haunted skeptic. And likewise, if you're a follower of Jesus like I am, then what Charles Taylor goes on to say is that you too are haunted. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're haunted by the possibility that this is all just made up. I'm a pastor. I've been pastoring for 15 years. I've been a part of church my whole life. I was saved when I was 13 years old. And yet still to this day, I'll have moments and flashes of doubt. Did this really happen? Is this just a made-up fairy tale? Is this something that Christians have said so that we can look down the barrel of death and feel better about ourselves? Are we just making all this up? I mean, and so here's my point is it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a follower of Jesus for years and years and years. We're all haunted. You're either a skeptical believer or a haunted skeptic, right? And so we need to ask these questions because these are the most important questions that you can and actually should build your life off of if this happened or if this didn't happen. So in light of that, let's look at the story. John Mark has been writing about this person called Jesus. He's been talking about his life, his ministry. We looked last week at his horrific death on a cross. And then we get this bizarre story of resurrection at the very end in chapter 16. So chapter 16, verse one, here's what it says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, who by the way is also the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. This is really literary genius right here for Mark. It's been dark leading up to the story, and now for the first time, the sun is rising. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Presumably, this is an angel. Anytime uh, people are in the presence of angelic beings in Scripture, they're filled with fear. Here's what we read in verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. That's the first thing you learn in angel school. Don't be afraid, right? Don't be alarmed. Uh, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And this begs the most important question that you will ever ask in your life. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Did this really happen or is this just a made-up story? Uh, The secular claim is no, the resurrection did not happen. And there's a number of theories that are put forward to say why uh, the tomb was empty and to show why the resurrection of Jesus isn't what it appears to be. So here's the first secular claim is the swoon theory that's put forward. The swoon theory is very basically that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that he merely passed out or went into a coma. And then sometime later, they laid him in a tomb and he uh, came back to his senses. He woke up and was able to make his way out of the tomb. The problem with that theory is that we have no historical account of anybody who survived a crucifixion. Uh, These are Roman executions that are uh, profoundly effective. We have no historical data that anyone could survive this. Jesus was beaten, according to Scripture, beyond recognition. And then the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. And and so then this body of Jesus is wrapped in like 75 pounds of burial linens and spices and laid with this giant rock over the tomb. So imagine if this were the case, that he merely passed out on the cross— then he would have to like wake up, unravel himself from the heavy linens that he was wrapped in, move this physical big stone out of the way, somehow sneak past the guards and travel several miles to his disciples, bloodied and disfigured in every way, and then somehow convince them that he was alive. And then they were to somehow believe this story that he was alive from the dead and then would stake their whole life on it and end up dying for that. See, so the swoon theory is a theory that's put forward. It just doesn't really make sense of the evidence. The second theory that's put forward is the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory is exactly what it sounds like. Somebody went in and stole the body of Jesus and then later claimed that this was a resurrection account. But again, it's guarded by Roman soldiers 24-7 because they did not want the body of Jesus stolen. Furthermore, you've got countless crowds that said that they saw Jesus alive after he was dead. So eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And then finally, the the thing about the stolen body theory is very few people are going to fabricate an entire lie and then base their entire life off of that lie and for years and years and years continue to believe that lie and profess that lie and then die for it. See, the stolen body theory doesn't make sense with the evidence that we have in the story. And then the third theory that's often put forward for why the resurrection didn't happen is called the ancient worldview theory. And this just very simply goes like this. Well, people back then believed crazy stuff. They believed in gods and ghosts and goblins and weird things and miracles. And we now know today, because of science and because of the, you know, the knowledge that we have as a kind of a, our culture, that those, there's, there's always a scientific explanation to those quote-unquote miraculous events. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and writers, he says this is called chronological snobbery right? Or I'll call it like uh, senior syndrome. When you're a senior in high school and you look back on the juniors, like those juniors are idiots. It's like, you know, you just were one of those juniors, you know? And like now you're like a year older and you're somehow better and more intelligent in high school. Like we often look back at people and assume that they were dumb and we're really smart. And guess what we've done with all of our intelligence and all of our technology is we just send poop emojis to each other on our phones. So that's like, we're not necessarily smarter is my point. And here's the problem with this ancient worldview theory is that nobody even believed in a resurrection of the dead anyway. 
The Jews believed that there would be one day at the end of history a resurrection where all dead people would arise, but not in the middle of history with just one man. And the, the Greeks and the Romans believed that when you died, your soul went into like this all-being spirit thing and your body was actually bad. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and the other thought is like these women that are going to the tomb weren't expecting a resurrection. They were expecting a body. Because do you know how Jesus is described at the end of Mark 15? A corpse. He's not even described as a person. He's called a corpse. So this ancient worldview theory, it doesn't hold up. Christians claim that Jesus died, and on the third day, he literally, physically rose from the dead. Why do we believe that? Well, we're not asking you to check your brain in at the door and just believe a fairy tale. Here's why we believe this. The first reason is simply the empty tomb. There's not been any plausible explanation for the fact that the tomb is empty. There's not been any uh, helpful position put forward to show why that's the case. So the fact that there's an empty tomb and no one has been able to produce a body actually means something that we need to wrestle with. The second thing that you should consider is that Jesus's own family worshiped him as God. Now, any moms out there? Moms, raise your hands. Any moms of sons out there? Yeah? I know you love your sons. I know, like, your sons are special, but it's hard to imagine that you would consider your son to be the sinless son of God, right? And even if you could get there, one thing is for certain, you're never going to convince someone's brother or sister that they are the sinless son of God, right? I, I come from a big family. I'm one of 10 kids. My mom and dad didn't have a TV growing up and they were bored, so I had kids all the time. And, uh, and, and I know my brother's enough to know that if one of them suddenly started to claim that they were sinless and God, I'd be like, you're crazy because I lived with you. I know you. And yet Jesus's family worshiped him as God. We're about to start a book of the Bible written by one of Jesus's brothers. The, the third thing to consider is the countless eyewitnesses. Up to 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. That's not a hallucination. 500 people can't hallucinate the same exact thing. You have women who are the very first people to witness the empty tomb and claim to see the risen Jesus. That's significant because in our culture, we fought for a lot of equality and rightly so, that's important and good. But in that culture, the testimony of women was wrongly not even considered valuable. And if women were to testify in court, it wasn't even viable. So here in the story, you have women that are seeing Jesus alive for the first time, no person in the first century and that cultural moment would have written women in in the story as the first eyewitness testimony of this event if it didn't just happen that way, right? This is a big deal. And then you got to wrestle with the transformation of the disciples. The fact that all of the disciples have fled from Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus, not even said that he knew the man. And they go from running and hiding and completely freaked out to in a matter of years, all, almost every single one of Jesus' disciples die a martyr's death professing that really Jesus is alive. He did die, but he did rise from the dead. That transformation, you've got to wrestle with that. Then the, the final reason why, and there's, there's more, but just for the sake of time, the final reason that Christians believe the resurrection actually happened is the unexplainable growth of the early church. You see, Christianity was one of many, many options in the first century. Uh, there are tons of religions, and Christianity was to be honest, the worst option if you wanted a viable life. It was the worst option if you wanted to thrive and flourish in that culture because you could believe in a multiplicity of gods, but whenever you said that there was only one God and if you didn't believe in that God, then you actually weren't gonna be brought into his kingdom, then that was highly, highly offensive 
to Rome and to the, the empire at the time. And so here you have this crazy, like, it's not even beneficial for you to claim to be a Christian, and yet within the first 300 years of the early church, it goes from, like, one of many options to the low estimates are between 7 and 10 million people across the Roman Empire claiming that Jesus is alive. That's significant when you think about the population at the time, that it actually became the dominant religion in a matter of 300 years. So in, Christ, so in summary, Christians actually believe that Jesus physically, literally rose from the dead. Here's maybe another more important question. Okay, if that happened, what does it matter? Like, what, why does this actually matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, here's why it matters. Because you and I are going to die. Happy Easter. Hope you think about that today when you're hunting Easter eggs, that you are going to be in the ground and fertilizer for plants one day. You and I are all going to die. And I'm not trying to actually poke fun at that. I'm actually trying to get you to think about that, that it doesn't matter what you do in your life. It doesn't matter how, how much CrossFit you do. It doesn't matter how much kale, soy grass, organic, whatever you eat. It doesn't matter how well you take care of your body. It doesn't matter how little you think about it. There's coming a day where every single person in this room is gonna breathe their last. Your brain will shut down. Your heart will stop beating and you will be dead, gone, dead. And this is terrifying to us. It's so terrifying to us that we rarely think about it as a culture. One author said it this way. He said, death is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has recently lost a child, and you'll discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. And here's what happens to us as a Western culture in light of death is that you and I have this haunting sense that there must be more to this life. There must be more than just we accumulate stuff and we have fun and we enjoy some pleasures and then we die. And there's this haunting, gnawing sense that there's something else out there. But what's happened in our culture is that we've done away with all of that transcendent reality and we've created a world where we can have everything that we've ever wanted at our fingertips or just a few clicks away. Think about all the things that we have in our life. We've got dog parks and Amazon same-day shipping and amazing restaurants and third-wave coffee shops. And, and if you feel sad about something or if you're nervous about death, you can just click, click, click and buy something to feel better. And we play existential whack-a-mole where anytime something serious in our hearts rises up, we hit it with a latte or we hit it with a vacation or we do something just to not feel and to numb, numb out. And all of us have been able to access what America calls the good life and you know, late at night, you know that there must be something more than this life. There must be something more after death. Surely there's something else out there. What is it? I've done everything that the world has told me to do, and I still haven't found the level of meaning and depth and hope that I've wanted. One of my favorite authors, American writers, is a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. He was not a follower of Jesus. He wrote incredibly brilliant things, and tragically ended up taking his own life in 2008. But David Foster Wallace was one of those men who looked down the barrel of reality long enough to where it freaked him out, and it terrified him, and he couldn't recover. And he had this to say about his own life. He said, it's something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness, 
I see it in myself and in my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. This sadness that I was going through was a real America type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. And what he's describing in biblical language is this this thing that you and I have done where we try to build the kingdom of God, but without the king. We try to have heaven on earth, but with no God. And what we're wanting is to create a world where we get to be the boss, where we get to define right and wrong, where we get to have ultimate say over our lives. And in doing that, we've disconnected ourselves from the creator. But when you disconnect yourself from the creator, you're pulling the plug on life itself. And and the story of the Bible starts in a garden with a man named Adam, where he basically says, not your will, but mine be done. And he shakes his fist at God and he does his own thing and thereby releasing sin and dysfunction and death and brokenness into our world. And you and I have been caught up into that same story where we've sinned and we've been sinned against and we do things that hurt people and we don't live up to our standards and and, and we release death and dysfunction into this world. And this story of the Bible culminates with another man, a man named Jesus, who the Bible describes as the second Adam. And we see Jesus in a very different garden, not the garden of, of Eden, but the garden of Gethsemane. And where Adam said, not your will, but mine be done, Jesus prays the prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And thereby living this life that we couldn't live perfectly under submission to the Father, he goes to the cross, on the cross, he takes our sin upon himself. We looked at this last week. He died the death that we deserve to die. And the good news of the gospel is that that story doesn't stop with him hanging on a cross. He's placed in a tomb and on the third day, he walks out out of the tomb alive. Jesus is not some bone dust in Palestine. He is the risen king made alive. And what that means is that because he entered the the darkness, because he went into the tomb, because he experienced death, he can actually bring light to those of us in darkness. He can bring hope to those of us who are lost. He can bring life to those of us who are lost in death. This is why we celebrate. It's not because Christians are good people or moral people or keep all the rules or are better than anybody else. We were lost. We were dead. And the good news is that he came for us and died the death that we deserve to die and now is giving us resurrection life. This is why we celebrate. This is why we sing songs. This is why we have hope is because Jesus being alive means that when I die, I will be raised again with him as well that our world itself that has been plunged in ruin is gonna be lifted up out of the depths of ruin and redeemed and restored the way that God intended it. This changes everything. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? And here's my, my fear, is my fear in, when I talk about the love of God or the mercy of God or the grace of God, that there's two responses. One is, oh, yeah, 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 of course God is loving. Like, why would we expect a God who isn't loving? And we just kind of run past that and assume that we deserve his love and somehow are like worthy of receiving his affections, that we've done enough good for him to smile down upon us. That's one concern. But the, the other maybe deeper concern is that some of you here are like, yeah, 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 God might love other people and he might in fact love everybody, but he could never actually feel this way about me. 
if you know my story, if you know what I've done, if you know the thoughts that I have, if you know what I've looked at or seen or participated in or whatever, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. Simply put, maybe your internal dialogue, the greatest objection for you is that this is a story of good news for everybody else, but it can't ever be a story of good news for you. And if that's you, I just want to say this to you. I want to say that one of the things about the gospel of Mark that has been a major theme, in fact, maybe the major theme of the gospel of Mark, is that this is a story of hope for utter failures. Complete and utter failures, this is a story of hope. Think about where the disciples and Peter are in this moment of Jesus walking out of the tomb. The disciples had abandoned Jesus and ran off. Peter, moments before, on Friday, this is Sunday, but on Friday, had denied even knowing Jesus, denied that he even knew the man, and had gone back to fishing, basically saying, I'm, I'm going to go back to my old way of living. They were completely failures at every level, and yet look at Mark 16, verse 6. And the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. Do you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Look at this. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus says, they're still my disciples. Oh, they're failures, but they're my failures. They're the ones that I love. They're still my disciples. Oh, tell Peter specifically. We haven't had a conversation yet, but I'm coming not to shame him, or embarrass him. But if you know what happens in John 20, Jesus comes to restore him, forgive him, and love him in the middle of his shame. That's what God wants to do with you today. He wants to come to you, not to bring wrath and justice and anger. He wants to bring you home. If you resonate with David Foster Wallace, that you're sort of adrift, you're lost, you've searched for meaning, and you haven't found it anywhere, Jesus came so that you could have light and life, and he wants to meet you in your shame and actually clothe you and forgive you and restore you. This is why we celebrate. All the people in the gospel of Mark are completely failing at every level, and yet Jesus loves them so much. Philip Yancey says this, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. But much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world, the poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn social rejects, the hungry and the thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, the prodigal, not the responsible son, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, Lazarus, not the rich man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. See, that's what Easter is. If you're like, what's Easter in a nutshell? It's a gathering together of the outcasts around the risen Jesus who actually did defeat death. That's what it is. That's why we celebrate. So I'm going to close, and I want you to notice the bizarre way that Mark shuts down the whole gospel. 
The last verse in the gospel account is verse 8. There's uh, an added set of verses 9 through 20 that are added in later manuscripts, like a few hundred years after the original was written by John Mark. And we have a podcast going up. Some of our pastors are going to talk about why that's in there and how that happens and why that's actually help, helps you trust in the reliability of Scripture even more. So that'll go up on our website next week. But the actual gospel account, the original account, stopped in verse 8. So listen to it because it is the most bizarre way to end this gospel that I could ever fathom. Look at verse 8. And these women, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Period. Full stop. Screen to black. Roll credits. What kind of ending is that? That is the worst ending to a gospel, is it not? It's like the women run away scared. The end. Like, what? I was mad at John Mark all week. Like, why would you end your entire gospel account with the most wah wah ending out of any? Like, in fact, that's why they added stuff later because, like, this, they've got to smooth the story over. Surely there's a better ending. That's literally why they did it. And, and, and yet, Mark is intentionally ending his gospel account this way. Why? is because he's trying to get you and I to ask a certain set of questions. That's what we started with, wrestling with questions. And Mark wants to end with us wrestling with some questions. Here's what happens when you read this and you think about it deeply. You go, what's going to happen? What will the women do? Are they going to believe that Jesus really is alive? Are they going to go and tell the other disciples that Jesus is alive? Are they going to, are they going to, deny themselves and take up the cross and follow after this risen Jesus? Are they going to become his disciples? What's going to happen? How will they respond? And friends, that's the point. Mark is looking at you and he's looking at me and he's asking you and I, how will you respond to the empty tomb? What will you say about this man? Is he really the son of God? Is he really who he says he is? Did he really rise again from the dead? Will you really deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after him? What will you do and who will you say that this man really is?